Good morning. If you would turn to James chapter 4. looking at, Lord willing, the first six verses. Two weeks ago, Kiefer preached last week, it's an introduction of the book of Jude that he'll be preaching through, but two weeks ago, we were at the end of chapter three, and so what we were looking at was wisdom from above that is first pure and then peaceable. So that, that was a couple of weeks ago, and now this week in chapter four, Verse 1, we start with these words, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a, it's a really a pretty striking contrast, just those two um, sentences or verses that I read. But if you put the whole thing together, it's, it's even more so. From talking about a harvest of righteousness sown in peace at the end of verse 18, to James addressing his readers now as you adulterous people that are in friendship with the world. And so from a wisdom from above that is gentle and full of mercy to you desire and do not have, so you murder. So he, he goes from talking at the end of chapter 3, he goes from talking about the peace that should be to the conflict uh, that is. Now we're going to highlight that contrast as we get you know, really into our, our first point this morning, really you know, to, so that we all feel really bad about ourselves. <laughs> um, but it, it's a... It's a peace that should be, but instead there is conflict. It's obvious that James' audience is no stranger to conflict. Conflict has been a part of the letter really since we began, and that's really the background or the context for the whole of the letter. So he started off, chapter 1, verse 1, with the to the 12 tribes and then dispersion. James' audience has been dispersed because they love and follow Jesus, and so they've been forced out of their homes, out of Jerusalem, um, by those who hate Jesus. So persecution was one type of conflict that they're facing. James really doesn't address how to deal with that except to say, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And you know, don't be friends with the world, meaning don't be um, like them. So that's one kind of conflict uh, that they faced, conflict from the world or from outside of them. But we face that as well, not in the same way, but we are seeing it increasingly so. It's the condition of the, uh, because of the condition that the world is in because of their, their sin. Paul in Romans chapter 3 goes on to talk about the various reasons for, for all, or, or for the, the state of the world outside of Christ. And at the end of that, he talks about the, the way of peace they have not known. And so that's in contrast to what James is fighting for today. Preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us to expect to hear others say bad things about us or expect to hear others curse us. Um, we're not going to avoid conflict in this world when we work in the world, when we go to college in the world, when we, have, you know, we live amongst those who are of the world. So James' readers are clearly being you know, um, um, attacked from the outside, but just as clearly they are having conflict inside the church. And that's the thrust of chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you. So he's already gone there. It's the among you that's important. But he's already gone there. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, the tongue is a fire. Again, this is in the context of their local church. The tongue is a fire in a world of unrighteousness. In verse 10, 
From the same mouth come blessing, bless God. From that same mouth comes cursing as we curse those who are made in the image of God. And that's what's going on inside this community in, in some way amongst those who love Jesus, who follow Jesus. And we see that as well. Is anyone needed or needing marriage counseling? Don't raise your hand. Um, have you had quarrels or fights with your wife, husbands? Have you had quarrels or fights with your uh, wives? Have you had, what about amongst parents and children, or a believing son and a believing dad, or a believing daughter and a believing mom? What about within the context of, of our church, amongst lo- local body, amongst, have you had conflicts, have you had quarrels and, and fights with them? Well, this is, James cares about this, obviously, and we must care about this. Um, listen to this observation that was made by an unbelieving outsider about the church. He said, I've often wondered why persons who boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, patience, uh, <clears throat> temperance, and charity to all men, I've often wondered why they should quarrel with such rank, uh, rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred, that this, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. (laughs) Why are people who say that their religion produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, known for rancorous animosities and bitter hatred towards one another? (laughs) That's a good question, right? Why indeed? And that's what James is getting at. By the way, do you know when that was, when that, when that, quote was made? Do you know where it was posted? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? No, it's even further back than MySpace. It goes back to 17th century. It was a Jewish, Jewish philosopher in the 17th century made that observation about the church. Imagine what he would say today if he could see the Twitter wars that go on amongst Christians and Christian groups out in front of everyone to see. Imagine what he might say. But James doesn't stop but just merely... Uh, uh, noticing the common experience that we all have with conflicts and you know, say, stop it. No, he, he gets at the heart of it, and that's what he's doing. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the, the source of our conflicts in our marriages, in our work relationships, in our church relationships, and our friendships, whatever it might be, is the passions that wage war within us. So when James says within us, He's not talking about amongst a group of people, some are waging war. No, he's talking about inside of each of us, inside of all of us, in the heart of all of us, our passions that wage war inside of us, that results in conflict. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then I would say that you really need, you, you above all people need to hear this, this message. And if you've been here before, you maybe have heard me say that, but, but listen to verse 4 of chapter 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity here means, means war, if you're not familiar. You're not really at war within yourself as far as this war with God goes, if you're not a believer. The whole of you, actually, if you haven't believed the gospel, the whole of you is at war with God. And I think you'd agree, I'd hope you'd agree, that that's not a war that you can win. But while that's true, and it is, hear this as well. You can be reconciled to him now. You can be at peace with this God who never loses a war by believing in his son, who is our peace, who died to make peace between us, 
in God. From that, you can be at peace with others. It's the only way you can be at peace with others. But you must first um, be at peace with God, and that's only through Christ. So if that's you, then I would ask you to listen. I'd beg you to listen. But as believers, we also need to hear what James is saying. Even though Jesus has already made peace for us, uh, between us and God, we have passions that do also wage war within us, which leads to conflicts with others. In fact, it's precisely because we are at peace with God that these wars wage within us. We'll get to that more in a bit. In a bit. But the fruit of those warring passions are the conflicts that we mentioned. Those passions, the fruit of those passions are conflicts in our marriages, conflicts in our relationships here at church, conflicts in our friendships. But thankfully, the great peacemaker has given us everything that we need to quiet those and to reconcile our relationships. We really just begin that part of it today as we look at verse 6, hopefully, and we'll get more into it as we get into verses 7 through 10. So let's begin with the question that James asked. It's a really good question. What causes uh, quarrels and what causes fights among you. So let's say that the, the conflict is between a man and a wife, and they come for counseling. And I sit down and I ask and I say, okay, what's the cause of the quarrels and fights that are going on between you? And the husband goes first and says, well, it's, it's my wife. You know, she, she sometimes says things that, that, that spark me. She sometimes does things that I don't really care for. Or she doesn't do things that I ask her to do. And so I look to the wife and I ask the wife, would you agree with that assessment? Well, if I don't do something or if I have said something or if I do do something, it's because he does something or he has said something or it's because he's not really doing anything. <laughs> it's, it's the same when we mediate conflicts between actually people in the church. Really anywhere. <laughs> the first thing that we go to is to blame the other person. They caused this. And that goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve are first confronted by God. It's the woman you gave me that caused me to eat that. It was the spirit that deceived me. In our conflicts, maybe some of that is true. I mean, the, the quarrel or the fight has to start somewhere. And whatever that is certainly needs to be dealt with. There must be repentance in order for forgiveness to be given. But James isn't really concerned about who's right and who's wrong. He's getting at the heart of it both. So the offender certainly does something, and that must be repented of, but oftentimes the offended party escalates it by their response or prolongs, actually, the war, uh, the conflict, the quarrel by their response. And so, um, thankfully, James is talking to both of them, both the offender and the offended here. They both have warring passions inside them. So when conflicts arise, the first thing that you do is ask James' question, what's causing it? And you go to his answer. But before we get to his answer, uh, I, I want us to see that this question is even better than we think it is at first glance. I use the word conflict a few times because most of our, our quarrels in marriages are more like conflicts than they are. They're not like World War I or World War II, right? Most of the time, it's not like World War I or World War II, right? It's like conflicts. But the, the word that, that, that is used here is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 to describe wars and rumors of wars. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus isn't talking about spats between 
married couples. He's not talking about people who disagree over what color the pews should be. In fact, that's a war that's coming pretty soon. We're changing the, 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 the colors of our, you know. It doesn't look like that, right? That's, that's not what our look like, but that's the word. It's, it's wars, rumors of wars. But I think James is using the word war here, so quarrels equals wars. I think he's using that kind of like he does murder in verse 2. He doesn't mean actual murder. I don't think people are killing each other. Um, he's using murder like Jesus did in Matthew 5, that hate in the eyes of God is the same thing as taking the life of another. In a similar vein, spats between Christian couples is the same as war in God's eyes. And the reason for that, Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, is that they come from the same place. And so Christian spats between marriage couples are viewed as Pearl Harbor. Same thing. It comes from the same place. Disagreements and quarrels and fights amongst congregation members, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, are like Hamas attacking Israel at a concert. In God's eyes, that's how he views those. They come from the same place. The second word is battle, so it's fights equals battles now. Uh, quarrels equals wars, fights equals battles. And the idea here is that there's a war going on between two Christians, and when, this, when they meet, there's a battle, there's a fight, there's a battle when they come together. Um, and so it's, it's fight equals battle because, you know, it's slander assassinates someone's reputation. Or corrupting words are words that we use to cause others to just sort of you know, rot in front of us, to break them down. Um, they come, again, from the same place, and their effect is the same spiritually. And if we didn't catch the importance of it from that, James then repeats the same words in, verse, in reverse order in verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, so you battle in war. So it's reversing the order. So it's the chiasm, the A-B-B-A structure. It's a tool to draw attention. When we quarrel and fight with one another as Christians, it's no small thing. To God, we war and battle and battle and war. Why is it no small thing? Oftentimes, our response to it is like, well, it's just going to happen. We're sinful people. We're going to have conflict. We're going to have these arguments. We're going to have these, these battles. But we can't treat it that way. James is talking about inside the church. I'm speaking to Living Faith Baptist Church, and that's his point. Why it's so crazy that wars and battles are happening in the church is because it just ought not to be because Jesus has made peace. And so because of that, there is no reason for wars and battles. Ephesians 2, 14, for he himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one. So that was Jew and Gentile, but... People from different backgrounds it made us both one. It's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in the one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so Paul begins, Jesus is our peace. It's not that he lays out the possibility for peace, that Jesus is our peace. Our peace between us and God. He's paid for all the hostilities. He's paid for all the offenses, removed all the hostilities, removed all of the enmity. Nothing stands between us. And so God never looks at us and says, I have reason to go to war with you. He never looks at us and says, I have reason to go to battle with you. 
No, Christ has removed all of that enmity, and it's the same then how we look at each other, how we should view each other. So it doesn't matter if we're Jewish or Gentilish. <laughs> Those distinctions don't matter. They don't divide us. It doesn't matter if we're master or slave. It doesn't divide us. It doesn't matter if we're male or female. It doesn't divide us. They're not reasons for animosity, whatever the problems that might arise out of those. Because we'll look at each other and we'll say there's no reason. In Christ, God has removed every reason for us to war, every reason for us to battle. And so it's crazy that we do. So, so why do we? Is it not this? That your passions that are at war within you, you desire and do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what are these passions? The word comes from, the word, the word is the same that we get our word hedonism from. Don't think John Piper's Christian hedonism. Think lust for power. Think seeking position. Think seeking um, priority um, over others. Seeking even pleasure. Uh, I, I think James is actually though going back to verse 14 and 16 of chapter 3, and he's referring to selfish ambition. Uh, but, but the context of these selfish ambitions you know, really arise within what I call honest circumstances here. So again, think of the broader context. James' audience might explain to James, who, who has a problem with their conflicts, and he says, but, but James, listen, you know, because of the dispersion, we don't have any jobs. We used to have jobs. Or because of the dispersion, I used to have a family support system. I don't have that anymore. So I'm a little irritable. Or I used to have status in Jerusalem where I grew up, where my family was. I don't have that anymore. Those are real circumstances that may be what's stirring up the conflicts within them. But, but honest circumstances are never excuses for wars and battles. And so that should remind us that James isn't saying we're not going to have circumstances or situations that warring passions might rise from. <laughs> Even as Christians, we're obviously going to disagree. Couples are going to disagree about how to save or spend money, over how to punish the children, over whether or not to paint the kitchen like a, like a basketball. That's a battle I lost. Well, actually, I won the battle, but I lost the war because I've never been allowed to pick a color for our house. We're going to disagree within the church. As I said before, we're going to probably have different opinions about what color our pews should be. That's an old joke that people, you know, churches divide over colors and, you know, floor and whatever. Wayne might opt for, I think, Carolina blue for the, the colors of our, of our pews. But if that happens, my mother will never sit down in a pew again here. She'll probably stand at the wall in the in the back, because she likes hellish, I mean, Duke, Duke Blue Devil, the Blue Devil Blue is the, whatever that color is. Seriously, we're going to disagree over things. How to set a budget. We'll disagree over secondary doctrinal issues. The elders are going to disagree about various things that affect us all. Elders and deacons aren't always going to agree. It's never happened before, but, you know, it might one day. But unity in the church doesn't mean uniformity. Conflicts can and do arise out of honest places, but the point is disagreements are not cause for wars and battles. There's a place for us to have disagreements in grace, 
and humility and deference to one another. It's our passions inside us that wage these wars. It's not the circumstances. As I said earlier, peace with God has brought us into conflict with enemies we once were at peace with. I think I mentioned that earlier. I'm not going to linger long on this, but I think it's worth noting in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul makes the point that before being saved, we were following the, the course of this world, and so that's worldliness. That's mentioned here, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, and then we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were at peace with the world's system and the world's priorities before we were saved. We were at peace with following after the, the path of the devil. We were at peace with our flesh that was warring against God, happily seeking our own pleasures, happily seeking our own power, however we might do it, even if we, the consequences are broken relationships or hurt people or whatever it might be. But God, verse 4 made us alive together with Christ. Once God brought us forth by the gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, regenerating us, causing us to be born again, and reconciling us to Him, all by grace, through faith in Christ, we were by nature at that moment at war with a sinful flesh. That's what James is focusing on here. So Galatians 5, 17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these were, are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As Christians, we want to do what pleases God. But our flesh wants to do what it pleases it. And so there's a war. There's, they're opposed to each other. Peter said it this way. First uh, Peter 2. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So same thing. So this is not a conflict we can avoid. And so as our selfish ambitions wage war within us, against the spirit, against our new nature, we need to wage our own war against them. How? Well, we're going to start with that today in verse 6, and then next week, Lord willing, look at the rest of that in verses 7 through 10. But if we don't wage our own war against these sinful passions, wars between us, battles between us will happen. So how do these passions cause conflict? That's what he gets in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and, and quarrel. Jesus is again drawing our attention with a bit of a literary device. He's He's using parallel phrases or statements. You desire and do not have is parallel to you covet and cannot obtain. Likewise, you murder is paralleled with so you fight and quarrel or battle in war. Ultimately, these selfish desires that have been, uh, have been frustrated. We have desires for something, but something stopped it, and so it's frustrated those desires. That's something that we talked about at Nick's the other night. A bunch of guys got together and you know, whined about all of our frustrations and how <laughs> we didn't do that. But we, we talked about our frustrations and how those frustrations lead us to sin against our wives and to sin against our children and to sin against our fellow church members, to, against each other even then. But, but in, the, in the context of James 4.2, it, someone else has something that, that, we, that we want for ourselves. For James readers, it could be a job or a certain status. We saw that in chapter 2 with the sin of partiality. Give the good seat to the rich person that I might gain something from him. It could be a family that you don't have. All of those apply to us. In in marriages, it could be the relationship the wife has with the kids and the husband is is frustrated by that because he doesn't have the same relationship. Or it could be the illusion of free time for the wife and the mom. It could be that the, the husband gets to go outside during the day and talk to actual adults all day long, and she doesn't get to. It could be that the husband is selfish with his time in the evenings, 
And so he comes home and he doesn't want to do anything. He just wants to sit and relax because of a hard day. And so the wife responds to that and gives him the cold shoulder or silence. In church, it could be the perceived status of an elder or a deacon. And so we talk disparagingly about them. Or it could be the, the life that someone has, else has that looks a lot easier than my life. And, and I want that. It could go on and on and on. But the selfish desires inside of us, the selfish ambition to get what we want, turns into then hate, which results in a certain look or a certain posture. It might be a snide comment, a false narrative, or your run-of-the-mill argument. There's really no end to what comes of these desires, but James in chapter 3 says that it, selfish ambitions, where it exists, there will be conflict and every vile practice. So at the basis level, what has happened is that we've decided that we're going to determine what makes us happy, not God, and that it's our kingdom we're going to build and not His. And we end up viewing people as obstacles that are in the way of getting what we want or as vehicles, like in partiality, as vehicles to get what we want. That's pretty vile. <laughs> Which reveals something else. These passions create a false perception of, of our own self-sufficiency. You do not have because you do not ask. As Christians, we, we know that we cannot provide for ourselves what we're ultimately seeking. And, and so going back to the, you know, the word for, for hedonism, we know pleasure can only be found in God. Right? The greatest status that we have is that we're a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James knew this well. He understood. He doesn't, he doesn't introduce himself as the brother of Jesus or the brother of the Lord. He says a bondservant, a servant of the Lord. That's the greatest status we can have. And that all the power that we need to be and to become what we should be and become is by the Holy Spirit. But when we're not waging war against the passions that are waging war inside of us, we don't turn to God for those things, and we don't ask. We somehow think that we are sufficient to find and acquire pleasure, power, status. But we're not. Doesn't that word ask here remind you to think of somewhere else that, that James says the word ask? Chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I think James is thinking of wisdom here in chapter 4. It's right on the tail of wisdom in chapter 3. We're not, we're not asking God for wisdom because we think we're self-sufficient. We don't need His help. And so we don't go to God in, in prayer. I've talked to a lot of people. We say they don't pray a lot. Pray for me about prayer. I need, I need to pray more about these various things. But if we don't, we somehow think we're, we're sufficient to meet their demands. We need wisdom to know how to navigate our trials or to respond to our trials or how to respond when we don't have. We need to go to God. And if we do in sincerity, He promises to give us the wisdom that makes for peace. Wisdom that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. If we don't turn to Him, then we're arrogant and prideful and selfish, and that results in conflict in every vile practice. Also, these, these passions produce selfish prayers. Verse 3. Someone might object to James. They might, That's not me, James. 
I do pray, actually. Oh, okay, what are you praying about? You're praying to God regularly, but you're still having these wars and these battles? Well, then this is your problem. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's, it's an ugly but, but pretty easy point that our word passions clears up for us here. These passages pervert our prayers into ones that sound more like, my will be done, not your will be done. What do these kinds of prayers sound like? Lord, Lord make my wife easier to, to get along with. Lord, can you change my husband so that he's easier for me to love and then by virtue of that submit to? Lord, grant me the job that I applied for so that my life can be a bit easier. It's really hard. Lord, could you humble so-and-so in the church just a little bit? He really rubs me the wrong way. Lord, could you get me out of this trial? It's too hard. Lord, quick. Caleb pulled me over for a speeding ticket. Change his mind about giving it to me. I said that because he's sitting back there in a police uniform. And I've seen him pull over people in this church. Mainly Nick Carpenter. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, praying, selfish. it's praying selfishly. It's treating God like a perpetual vending machine for us to get what we want from Him. It's, it's, it's treating God in, in that exact way. The motives are wrong. They're interested in our plans, not God's. As James says, God will not answer. Proverbs one twenty eight. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. But before we move on, selfish prayers, self-sufficiency, hate, and wars and battle, this ought not to be. This ought not to be indicative of those who have peace with God, who have peace with one another as believers. So I think the ultimate question at this point is that James is driving at is, what do you want? What plans do you prefer? You prefer God's plans or do you prefer your own plans? Whose will do you think is best? Yours or God's? Do your prayers reflect that? And maybe the most important thing is, do your relationships reflect that? If not, it gets worse. We, we, we just saw how our passions that we war, war inside of us cause conflict with others. Now we see how they cause conflict between us and, and God. So verses 4, let's just start with verse 4. You adulterous people, that's not a good start. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of, of God. In case you missed it, missed it, this is James' strongest rebuke here so far in the letter, not just our passage. Um, and it's, it's for the church. Adultery itself is a, is a gross sin of selfishness. It's a violation of a covenant, a marriage covenant that's made between a man and a woman. They have pledged to love one another, only one another. And another, though, has given that love to another. As devastating as that is, James is speaking of something else far more significant, spiritual adultery. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the prophets portrayed the relationship between God and His people in, in this way as a marriage between two, God as the husband and Israel as the, as the wife. And Israel became the adulteress. Ezekiel 23 is a tough passage to read in this light. It's, 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 a, it's heartbreaking as it is horrific. 
Hosea is another one that shows Israel's unfaithfulness well to us. God told Hosea, to, to, uh, the prophet, to marry a prostitute as a living example, a living picture of God's relationship with, with Israel, but primarily Israel's promiscuity. Hosea's wife, the harlot, married Hosea and then went back to other lovers. Back, back, and back, and back again until she had nothing, left with nothing, and only to be sold on an auction block. Likewise, the Israelites were committing spiritual adultery with other gods, with idols. James is drawing on this Old Testament background. In the New Testament, the picture is of Christ in the, as the bridegroom, and we the church as the bride. So Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 23. We spent several weeks in that. We're going through that. Ephesians. And who is the illicit lover? No, verse 4 is clear. It's the world. It's not the physical world outside of us. It's the, the world's way of life. It's the, the world's priorities and how the world views things and how the world chases things and does things. It's, it's painful, isn't it? That, that James is, is, because of our conflict, because of our conflicts with one another, and we all have them, because of our conflicts with our wives or our children, that he's putting our name under that. You adulterer. I wonder what kind of language Ezekiel would have, have, would have for the church today. Almost every time I turn around, there's another deconstructor. Have you heard of the detanglers? That's another one. Detanglers are those who are saving Christianity from the patriarchy and the creeds and the confessions that came and misinterpreted the Bible. And so they're going back and reinterpreting it for us so that we better understand it. And it just welcomes everything and anything. It's disgusting. I think whore would probably be the word that Ezekiel would use. Hosea uses it as well. But James is speaking of the church, the real church. Brothers, he's called them. Among us, he says he's identified himself with these people. James says, you adulterers. I think this is tied back to the previous verse. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. So the picture is those who war and, and battle with other believers because of the sinful passions that are in them and driving them to get stuff for themselves are the adulterers who go to her husband and to ask for money and then go take it and then go and spend it on themselves and then upon their lover, the world. Vile practices aptly applies, I think, here. Who is this person? Let's go on. Sinful passions that cause wars and battles is friendship with the world. It's hard to even say. It makes you an enemy of God. Verse 4 again. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's an easy spiritual calculation to answer. You cannot have two. You cannot serve two. You may try, but as Jesus said, you'll just end up hating the other one or one of them. James is pretty clear here. If you love the world, if you try to be friends with the world, and the one you're going to hate is God. Unless we think I'm blowing this out of proportion, talking about our conflicts between marriages and, and internal relationships within the church, 
Remember how James has framed things for us throughout this passage. Just as murder equals hate, so do quarrels and fights equal Hamas attacking Israel at a, 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 a national concert. I thought an overreaction because Jesus plainly said that from the heart come both murder and slander. God views them both as one and the same. From further, James has said that the, these warlike quarrels and fights come from deep down inside of us, deep-seated, selfish desires that prefer ourself, himself, herself, over God, my kingdom, not God's kingdom. And that re- reveals a disgusting level of arrogance that either says, I don't need God, so I won't pray, or I'll use Him to do my bidding. So when we think we can serve two, remember, remember judges, remember how tough that was week after week after week of Israel playing both sides, Baal, Baal, when they wanted sex and, and rain, but when they wanted to, you know, when something, trouble was coming, back to Yahweh they go, and God rescues them, and then back to Baal, the Asheroth, and all of that. Destroy your idols was the constant lesson, week after week after week. I think my math is right, and it pains me to see my name under those headings, adulterer, where I and my own selfish desires have played the friend of the world, enemy. Because I know I'm capable of doing everything that James has spoken of, and worse, my experience, my track record tells me that I have done that. Don't you see the same? You and I, we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both the world and God. Our relationships are the bottom line beneath the math problem. And so what do our relationships say? Who do they say you serve? Who do they say you love? Who do they say that you are? I don't want to soften this, and I won't in just a second, but but I take verse 5 as sort of a beginning of hope for us. God is a jealous, is jealous, and I say here, for some adulterers and some enemies. There's actually some debate over whether or not some of these people that James is writing to are actual Christians. Now, they may turn out not to be, but I think verse 5 would tell us that James' assumption is that they are Christians. Or do you suppose it is to no surprise that the Scriptures say he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, this, this is a really hard verse to interpret. Um, I looked in a, a hundred places I even looked at Jim's outline, and I disagree with Jim on this, sorry. Um, but he, I, I take this, this to be a little S spirit, um, that God yearn, earn, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Spirit you know, could be translated either you know, our spirit um, or Holy Spirit, but, but I, I think that's what it is. I think that it's our spirit that he put in us that James has in mind as I read it in the ESV. God yearns for what is his to come back to him. He has made us his. So Christ, Christ has bought us by the blood of his cross. He gave us new birth, a, 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 a new spirit, small s, to live within us. And he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. We are his, bought, purchased, his forever. We are his, and God, James says, yearns jealously over us. But how does that give us hope that God is a jealous God? Remember that we said a few weeks ago, jealousy is not always negative. As a husband, I'm jealous for my wife. If someone were to try to lure her or seduce her away, 
I would become very angry. I would protect her. I would be jealous for her. She would do the same um, for me, I think. No, I'm just kidding. For me, of course. This is God was with Israel. So when we read Exodus 25, that God is a jealous God. It's a holy jealousy. He, he longs for what is His to return to Him. For His love is a covenant love. Don't you find that comforting? That God is a jealous God. He yearns over us, if I'm interpreting this right. I find it, apart from Scripture, almost unbelievable. Given everything that we've seen and given how we can apply it to our own selves, apart from the Scriptures that give us all of the promises, of course, but apart from that, absolutely unbelievable to me that He would be jealous for me. I know from His Scripture that God is faithful to every last word, that He'll complete every last promise, and that He'll keep, as Kiefer spoke um, last week. He's a God who keeps us. He will keep every last one that He gave to the Son before the foundation of the earth. None of them will slip from His hand. I know those to be true. But apart from His Word, I'm dumbfounded. He's jealous to keep me. But from His Word, it, it, it is better. If we are His, He'll do anything necessary to bring us back. It's verse 6. He'll give grace to those who humble themselves and return to Him. Grace, unmerited grace, amazing grace. So, so why then do I say that God is jealous for some adulterers and some, some enemies? Because actually some of us who are His act like adulterers and enemies. Alec Moyer said, some A.D. Christians, so not attention deficit Christians, but A.D. Christians in the calendar. Some A.D. Christians live like B.C. Christians sometimes. God's jealousy for you, for me, if we are His, is a very good thing because He will humble us and give grace to us and bring us back. Which brings us to our final point. Verse 6, but he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is very quick because we'll, we'll come back to this next week, Lord willing. We have two people here, the proud and the humble. James is pleading with his readers to be the latter, the humble, as he's doing with us this morning. But God opposes the proud. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. James is writing to some of those who may show them, who have shown themselves to be prideful, but who may continue despite this, despite this letter, despite what he's saying, despite the scriptures, to show themselves to be proud. In light of our text, I think this is what that looks like. The proud do not know their need. They neither hear or accept when the scriptures have unanimously stated that the chief end of man is God's glory, that it's both right and good. He alone deserves that the proud resist their need for Him and His eternal pursuit for His own glory. They, uh, the proud resist their need for wisdom that, that, that comes from above. The proud resist His need for, for more of God and not of the world. <laughs> more of God, not more of Himself. Secondly, the proud treasures His own independence. And so, kind of linked to that, but they neither need God nor do they need people, others, the community around them, they are obstacles or vehicles. 
They are quite content in their self-perceived self-sufficiency. And most glaringly, to continue in your wars and battles because of sinful passions waging war inside you, to continue in that is not is to not recognize your own sin. The opposite of that, that God gives grace to the humble, it is the opposite. The humble is, is to know your need for God first, and your need for God's people, and your need to live in peace with both. The humble, to be humble is to treasure your dependence upon God, who works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's the treasure our need for others to walk with us and use their gifts that we might all serve each other within the body and be built up into our head, Jesus Christ. And so we strive together to protect the bond of peace that Christ has purchased for us. And humility is shown in our knowledge of our own sin, to be horrified that God sees our spats as wars, that God sees our assimilation of the world's ideals and priorities that we repented of as enmity and to be disgusted that our fights show our idolatry. And so the question there is, which one are you? I would love to close with so much more, but which one are you, the proud or the, the humble? The one that God opposes, the one who's staunch and who will stand and continue to fight and run to conflict, or the one who's humble by God's grace and receives grace from God to be at peace with one another. Which, which one are of you? I've been the proud. I've been in this church for lots of years with lots of you, not all of you, but lots of you, and I know that you have been this person. But listen, our testimony has been that God's grace in Christ is greater than all of our pride. That God's grace in Christ has been better and stronger than all of our weaknesses. Than all of the passions that stir within us, God's grace in Christ has been stronger. And that's been our testimony over the years. What's well, the, the same thing that is offered to all of us today for the conflicts that await out of circumstances that are unbeknownst to us or we're in? Even to the unbeliever, to the believer, to the unbeliever, let me just ask you this question. Do you prefer yourself, your flesh? Do you prefer the world and what the world offers you? Do you prefer, as I mentioned before, Satan and following his path and how that ended up? Or do you hear to prefer this? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Is this something you see in your relationships? Is this something you see from the world, experience from the world? There's only one place this is found. He goes on, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
to make peace between us, adulterers and enemies, and God. To make peace between one another. If, if you're not a believer, is this something you're going to get anywhere else other than Jesus Christ? No. No. You will not. And if you continue to be self-sufficient, stand your ground. Listen, again, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you will not humble yourself, and as the passage continues, in, in humility, submit your desires to his. You will bow in a much different way. Forced by Christ the Lord. So my call to you, if you're not a believer here today, is to, to hear this. There is no peace with God outside of Christ. There's no peace with man outside of one's peace with God through Christ. And so if that's you here today, child or adult, I would ask that you'd speak with me. I would love to speak with you. I beg all of the time for someone to speak with me. It could get me out of a meeting later. I'm just, just, just kidding. I would love to speak with you. And if you're a believer, if we're believers, and there's lots of us here today, then think about our quarrels, our spats, how God views them what that says to the world, what it does for our unity, and how we should view others as God views us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us, and certainly you are. And Father, we pray that all that we have done today is glorifying to you, and all that we do after this, that you may be truly honored and glorified. Father, we pray that Christ is exalted. We pray for those who do not know you, that you would save them. We pray for us who do, that you would save us from our sins, the presence. Father, we thank you for the power of our sins. Father, we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.